How many, how many of you like are just when you look at the New Testament church, you just love it? I mean, how many of you love the New Testament church? I totally love the New Testament church. They're awesome. I mean, like stuff's happening. People are coming to Jesus. There's some amazing things, and so uh, it's you know, as a pastor, you just go, oh man, I just want to see these things happen in my life, and 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 you kind of idolize or uh, see the church through a, through a stained glass window, like it's just the most wonderful thing on earth. And how many of you, uh, you know, have known people who are out looking for churches and they just can't find the perfect church? Anyone? Yeah, and, and what I found out is that as I read the New Testament and all the letters, they're all corrective. The whole New Testament is corrective. Jesus, the first thing he says to the churches in Revelation is what? Yeah, repent, 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 and all this stuff all over again. And uh, this is great what you're doing, but this I have against you. And so you think some of that might be going on here? Yeah, in my life, your life, you bet. And so we see this awesome New Testament church, God doing amazing things. And yet at the beginning of chapter 15, the end of chapter 15, we have conflict. We have conflict within the church. People who love God, people who are filled with the Spirit, people who are born again, not getting along. Has that ever happened before? (laughs) Yeah, it happens. It happens. And so what happened is uh, Paul and Barnabas, they just got back to their first missionary journey. They'd taken incredible risk following the Holy Spirit into these areas, getting kicked out of cities. Paul got stoned with rocks, you know, as if, if he was dead, the disciples came around him and then he was raised again, so to speak, and went on to the next city. And so all this stuff is going on over and over and over. They come back, they're hanging out in Antioch, which is the hub, it's in Syria there. And it says, after a while, chapter 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea, Judea being the area of, of Jerusalem, to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Division in the church right away. There's arguing going on within the church. And in this case, it's over doctrine. Quite often, our arguing is carnal. It's carnal. It's fleshy. It's not where it should be. It's not based upon the right things. We see that in 1 Corinthians. They were divided over which Bible study they were going to. Oh, well, I go to Paul's Bible study. Oh, well, I go to Apollos' Bible study. Oh, well, I go to, I follow. Oh, yeah, well, look at me. And you're going, okay, you guys are lame. I follow Christ's Bible study. And then they're just like, oh, yeah, well, and they're one-upping each other. And there's just this silly division going on in the church. And so sometimes there's carnal division going on in the church, things that that just really are just based out of selfish motivation. But then there's times when, Actually, division and um, confrontation is actually a, a thing that we're called to. It's love. You have these guys coming down from Jerusalem preaching that in order for a person to be saved, they had to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. Now, I can get along with so many different people in the body of Christ with so many different backgrounds and different slants on things. But when you come into the contact, when you come into the place where you are dealing with an issue of salvation, it is the most important, most critical, most non, 
negotiable aspect of our faith. It is what it means to be a Christian. So we can talk with people about, uh, you know, women pastors, men pastors, gifts of the Spirit, different things. You know, I mean, you can, you can go all over the place with stuff and still have fellowship with people uh, and, and get along generally, right? But when it comes to this is how you're saved and there's a disagreement, there is no fellowship. You have to part paths. And this was a very important situation because Paul and Barnabas got in a sharp dispute with these guys who were coming down from, a, they had a background of the law and the Mosaic law. They were, we'll see they're part of the Pharisee, Pharisaic group. And they came down and said, it's Jesus and. Jesus and the law of Moses. And so Bar- Barnabas and Paul, being good shepherds of the flock, being good uh, pastor, teachers, encouragers, disciples, exhorters, they jump on that and they say, no, 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 no. This is not what can be taught. It needs to stop right now. And there's a place for that. And that's why God's placed elders in the body of Christ. Because we get, we get bombarded with stuff and different thoughts and different angles all the time, right? And a lot of it you have to discern through. But some of it's just black and white. That is why a Mormon is not a Christian, that is why a Jehovah's Witness is not a Christian. What? Did I offend anybody? I'm not trying to be offensive, but they have a different gospel, a different... If you look on the front of the Book of Mormon, it says, the Book of Mormon, lowercase letters, another testament of Jesus Christ. Paul in Galatians chapter 2 says, if I or an angel for heaven preach to you another gospel... Let him be accursed, eternally damned, is the word. If I, or an angel, where did he get the message from? Moroni is an angel. You know, I mean, let him be eternally damned. And so there is this separating point, and you don't want to, uh, you know, be so offensive to where you can't reason with people. But at the same time, you don't allow that teaching into the church. You draw the line, you say, no, this is false teaching. And so that's what Barnabas and Paul are doing with this example. And it's very difficult. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed. What happened? Uh, They were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Wouldn't it be awesome if we just had, like, apostles and elders? We could just, you know, what do you do? You know, what do we do? Let's go see the original 12. You know, let's let's go figure out what they have to say. We don't have that. You know, we've got what they said, and we've got the Word of God, and so we rely upon what they've already taught in these situations to base truth and doctrine upon. The, fa- the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That is the foundation, what they taught. So we fall back to that as far as clarity of doctrine. What did they say? How did they handle things in certain circumstances? And so how were these guys appointed? Who appointed them? You're having this disagreement in the church, the leadership in the church appoints Paul and Barnabas and these guys to go up and, get the, and, and go to the council and get some, get some wisdom. And it says, the church sent them on the way. Notice the body is involved. All the people. The church is the glacier. It's the gathering. That's what it means. It's a gathering of people. It's not a building. The building did not send them. The people sent them, right? And they sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, remember they're going back up to Jerusalem, They told how the Gentiles had been converted. And so they're sharing the messages as they go, what they had done with all the believers. Remember, the gospel spread from Jerusalem. It started going down, or it started going up, sorry. Um, 
I'll explain that later. But they're going, it's going up to uh, Lebanon, Syria, Cyprus, all, uh, Turkey, all those areas. Now they're coming back down through these areas, and they're sharing what God had done. They could not email each other. You know, they had to wait long periods of time to find out how people were doing. They actually had to send people walking long distances. I mean, imagine how inconvenient it would be to find out how people are doing in Tri-Cities. And you just had to walk. You know? <clears throat> so that's what's going on here. And so uh, this news made all the brothers very glad. They were excited. In verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything. Notice there's a submission. There's a submission to the leadership within the church. And I love that. We'll always be submitted to someone. Amen? Always. I'm not a lone ranger around here. I submit to the board. I have ideas about stuff. I ask, I say, hey, can you guys, pr-? I mean, we've done that this week. How many times? I mean, and we submit to one another in the Lord. We're always under authority. That's a beautiful thing. And it's a very healthy thing. And they reported everything. Notice God had done through them. When God does amazing things through you and in you, it's important to recognize who actually did it. When people are coming to Christ, when there's sin being broken in your heart and in your life, I did it. Well, kind of. God did it in you and through you. His grace was strong enough. So he gets the glory. And then it says in verse 5, Then some of the believers, notice they're believers there, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, not a very fun party here, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So you're going back to Jerusalem, you're going back to HQ, and then people who are part of that council, part of that leadership, part of that church, are part of the Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees? They were the ones who kept the law strictly. Jesus ran into them over and over and over again. And they would always emphasize keeping the law of Moses. Keeping the law of Moses as a means of righteousness. Flip over to Philippians chapter, uh, uh, chapter 13, verses, chapter 13, Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. It's right. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Verses 2 through 9. Reading here, this is Paul. This is what he thinks about these guys, these Pharisees. He says, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Speaking of circumcision. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship God by the Spirit, who glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. What? Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. And he's saying, you you look at these guys and how they kept all the rules? I was flawless. So I'll put them to shame. And you actually read uh, extra-biblical historical stuff about Paul, He was a monster. He was amazing in that whole religious world. 
And he goes on, he says, For zeal, I was persecuted the church, and it's for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Verse 7, But whatever was profit to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God is by faith. Righteousness means how are you declared right in front of God? How is a person declared right, innocent before God? And Paul says it is not through keeping of the law. And so he's, he and Barnabas have this sharp contention with uh, the Pharisees. And they, these Pharisees stood up in, in, this, in this meeting. They said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And it says, verse 6, The apostles and the elders met to consider the question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He's referring to what we read in chapter, was it 10, Cornelius? He says, hey, God made it evident through my lips that people, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the people who weren't like us, we're going to get saved. Remember when I went down and talked to Cornelius and I preached the gospel to him? And what happened? They were saved. They ended a whole household. Was circumcision any part of that? No, it was not. Verse 8, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit. They gave him the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Remember Acts chapter 2? They were filled with the Holy Spirit upon faith, so to speak. Many people were believing, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit as well. He said, hey, God poured out his Holy Spirit on them as well. And this is the thing. In the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. The sign that you were God's was, was circumcision. The sign of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. And the picture of circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, is a spiritual picture of the cutting away of the flesh, the old life. And now we live by the Spirit. That's why God talks about baptism. What is he talking about? It's not the physical act of baptism. It's God. It's a clean conscience before God. He puts you in the water. You are identified with Christ. I no longer live, but it is now Christ who lives in me. The old part is done away. And now the life we live, we live not by flesh, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me. It's a life of faith, a life of trusting the Lord, being led by the Spirit, not by the law. That's what the new covenant is all about. The New Testament, new covenant, same thing, is all about. It's no longer the way it used to be. And these guys were saying, no, it's, it's a combination. It's a hybrid of both. You've got to trust in Jesus, but you've also got to follow the law of Moses. You've got to trust in Jesus and you've got to keep the law to be saved, to be saved. So there's a, there's a giant argument here. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 is, is a, a, a beautiful verse regarding uh, the Holy Spirit. It says, that's not right. Sorry, everybody. I write in tongues. 
<laughs> Need an interpreter. But it's talking about the, the seal of the Holy Spirit, that that is the sign of the new covenant, basically. That is the down payment. The proof that you are His is not by an outward sign, it's by an inward sign. You are now filled with this Holy Spirit. You've now been given the Spirit of God. And so that, that was, that's a very important thing. And Peter's saying, hey, they had the Holy Spirit just as we have the Holy Spirit. Just as he did to F. And guess what? Verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them. He didn't say, oh, the Jews were better than the Gentiles. He made no distinction. He poured out the Holy Spirit the same way on both of them. And for he purified their hearts by faith. And that is how our hearts are made clean, by faith, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. That's it. If you're trusting that at the end of your life, you will be right with God for any other reason other than what he has done on your behalf, it is works. It is a work. You must just trust. You can't keep enough laws. You can't do enough good things. It's not going to work. Jesus was our righteousness. He is our righteousness. He is our goodness. He is how we get free, how we are declared righteous before a holy God. And so it goes on. And I love Peter in this, in this setting. He's, he's not trying to be, uh, you know, trying to make sure everybody's feelings are okay. Verse 10, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? How many of you have been able to keep the law flawlessly? Oh, <laughs> yes. And therefore, she just broke one of them. <laughs> yes. But I'm just saying, how many of you have kept the law? I mean... Do not lie. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't make false idols. Okay, well, I haven't built rocks. So really, what do you worship? How are you treating your parents? You know, I mean, just go down the, down the road, all of them. And we look at one, and I just look at one going, oh my goodness, I'm sunk. Do not murder. How many of you have murdered people? Yeah. Do not murder. Do not kill, right? And then Jesus, you flip it over in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, what does he do? You think it's the act. And he goes, it's your heart. If you even have it in your heart, you're guilty. And we just go, oh my goodness, I am toast. It's not committing adultery, it's thinking about it. You're done. All are guilty before God, and that's the problem. That's the dilemma of the world. All guilty before God. We already know this. And so we're, they're making this point. They're driving it home. Peter says, listen, why are you trying to put this yoke on it? We don't even keep it. We can't keep it. We've tried. Us, our ancestors, look at our history. We can't do it. Why are you trying to put this yoke on them? In verse 11, Exclamation point, no. He stands up in front of everybody, no. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. He stands up to this, this affront to the gospel. He says, no. Everybody, no. We believe that it's by grace. 
through faith that you're saved. That's it. Pretty cool. Now, Peter's laying it out there to the guys. And then it says, The whole assembly came by silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and the wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And so there's these great works that have happened. Remember in John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, you'll do greater works than I have done. A sign, you know, miracles accompanying the gospel going forward. Amazing stuff. They're they're recalling all these things that have happened. The actual physical, tangible manifestation of God's presence and blessing upon what they were doing, how the gospel came forward. They're relaying this to the Pharisees. They're relaying this to the council. In verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. This is the half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote the book of James. He's, he's, he's now, it seems like he is the leader there. He's the, he's the head guy. He goes, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God has first showed us concerning, uh, concerning by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, and he starts to quote Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that a remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does, not, uh, who does these things uh, that have been known for ages. In other words, uh, God who's done things from ages past. He's just basically saying, listen, what Peter says is great, and it's awesome, and it's a wonderful testimony and all these signs, but how does it match up with Scripture? Do you see that? That's wonderful, but does it match up with the Word of God? Does it match up with what he said? And notice he said prophets, and he's just quoting one prophet, but so many times in the Old Testament, all the prophets are talking about the Gentiles being a part of God's plan. We see that in the story of Abraham, that through you all the nations will be blessed. We see it through David. We see it through all the different prophets. This is part of God's plan to draw people who were not God's people and make them God's people. That is his plan. That is why you are here. Did you know that? Because God has drawn you to himself through his son, by his spirit. Pretty cool stuff. I love it. And so it does not make a difference if there's a lot of great signs and wonders and all that stuff going on. Does it match up with what the word of God? Does it match up with what God said? And James, being a wise leader, he brings the whole group back to the word of God and says, these are proof texts that we're okay. This is what actually God's doing. Important to do that in our lives. And he goes, verse 19, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Don't make it difficult. All these people coming to Christ, make them circumcised. Are you crazy? Verse 20, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest time as it is as it, sorry, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And there's a couple different ways of looking at this, but the way I generally look at this is I think he's trying to bring unity into the body. Listen, all you Gentiles who are coming to the Lord, all you Gentiles who are coming to the Lord, listen, your ways are going to offend Jews. 
you know, you going out there and eating your, your meat that's sacrificed to idols, the Jews, you're not going to be able to have unity within the church if you let these things go on. You know, sexual immorality obviously is one for everybody. Remember uh, in Revelation chapter 2, he's speaking to one of the churches. Jesus says, hey, I've got this against you. You let the doctrine of Balaam come in your church. Balaam, what happened is Balaam couldn't, remember he's up there, he had, remember the donkey talks and all that great stuff? He has seven things to say. He couldn't pronounce a curse on God's people, but what he did do is he let that, that foreign king, Moab, know that this is how you can get the people of Israel. I can't curse them like you want me to do. God won't let me. But if you want to get them, entice them away sexually. Entice them away. And Jesus is saying, don't be doing this. This is mixed up with idolatry. In the food sacrifice to idols, their whole system was all about the food that they ate was sacrificed to an idol and they bring it to the market and sell it. Right? And it was all, and inside the temples and all these things, these sexual things were going on that were ungodly and so it was all wrapped together. And so in this culture, he's saying, hey, stay away from that stuff. That's darkness. Don't, Eat things that are strangled. You know, God talked about letting an animal bleed out. Don't just choke it and then leave the blood inside. You can have a big juicy steak and the Jews are sitting there going, what are you doing? You know, I can't hang out with this guy. Give. And so just because you have this liberty does not mean that you have freedom to stumble your brother. And I think that's the essence of what's going on here. Listen, parameters on the church. We are under the, not, no longer under the law of the Old Testament. We are under the law of love. And if that means I have to, I give up, uh, you know, hanging out and buying my meat in a market where they sell idols because a brother gets tempted by, is, is offended by that, then I no longer do that. I'm free to not do that. It's not an obligation of law. It's an obligation of love. So therefore, you're free to drink alcohol. But if someone has a problem with that in, you know, in, in the church, what are you doing, it's, you know, doing your freedom in front of them where you're pulling them back into that or you're hitting something? Love would say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. You see, I'm just taking practical examples out of our life. It's not a legal thing. It's a love thing. We're under the law of love, and that's how we live as Christians. How is the gospel going to go forward in this situation, you ask? How is this going to bring glory to Christ? Is it not going to bring glory to Christ? Amen? And so... Verse 22, then the apostles and the elders with the whole church, notice the whole church got brought into this. These important decisions were made by the leadership in the church. God, there are times when, when there are not non-doctrinal important things that are something that we can all be a part of. For example, problems with... Uh, well, the distribution of bread between widows, right? What did they do? The apostles said, hey, why don't you guys pick out seven people among you guys, figure it out, and let us know, right? And they did, and they picked out seven people, and they brought it, and, and then what, what did the apostles do? They said, cool. Prayed for it and go, that's great. Now, here's the issue of doctrine. A doctrine comes in, a false teaching comes in the church. That is what the elders of the church are called to do. Protect the doctrine. Make sure you're being fed good food, not 
bad stuff. And so that's not a place where it's up for debate for everybody to discuss whether or not this is a false teaching or not a teaching. It goes straight to the council. And then they take their decision and say, this is what's going on. And the church then goes and, and uh, molds it over and says, okay, I see what's going on. There's a place for that. But there are different callings within the church. You know? And it's just, it's hard to do, but that's shepherd the flock of God. Beware of false teachers. And he's constantly hammering Timothy. He's constantly hammering Titus and all these people. Be careful. Be on watch. Be looking out for your sheep. That's your responsibility as an elder. So your elders need prayer. They need prayer to be able to know what is of the Lord and what is not of the Lord and to know the word of God and to divide it rightly. Amen? so that these things don't sweep in under us and divide us and kill us. And that's not to say that God doesn't work through the body. Yes, he does. But in these, these situations where major doctrines, I believe, uh, you know, the, the eldership is heavily involved. And so uh, the apostles and elders, they decided with the whole church, they decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Barnabas. And they chose Judas called... Barsabbas and Silas, two men whom leaders uh, among the brothers, with them they sent the following letter. And I love this letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. And so we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul. I love that. They all agreed. I think the Pharisees, they turned around when they saw it. Isn't that cool? That they got together and go, yeah, you know what? I think you're right. That's great. To reason with each other from the scriptures and to pray through things and find the heart of God. He goes, so we all agreed to choose some men and send to you with with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul. So they reaffirmed that they're close with them. Listen to them. Men who have risked their lives for the sake of the gospel, uh, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, therefore we are sending Judas and Silas. This is not Judas, this is Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is dead. This is a different Judas. Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth uh, what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meat uh, of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality, you will do well to avoid these things. This is wise. I love that. Farewell. (laughs) They received this letter. The men were sent off and went down, verse 30, to Antioch. And they gathered the church together and they delivered the letter. And the people read it and they were glad. And for its encouraging message, they were rejoicing. And Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, and so they had the gifting of prophecy, perhaps, or the office, uh, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. They're encouraging and strengthening, and this is what we need in, in our churches, right? In the church of God. Encouraging and strengthening. And after spending some time there, they are sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. Verse 35, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many, many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Praise God. Notice the word of God goes forward after this dispute. Verse 36, and we'll just briefly touch this. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Hey, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we would preached the word of the Lord and see how they're all doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John 
also called Mark. And that word for wanted is is um, it's it's kind of he was his mind, he was determined is the word. He's determined to take uh, John, also called Mark, who's his nephew, right, with him. But Paul did not think it wise. That's a polite way of saying what it says in the Greek is insisted. But Paul insisted not to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And so we have two people who love God, who are gifted by God, who are strong leaders, who are disagreeing. Does that ever happen? Never. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas and Paul, as far as the scriptures are concerned, they never ministered together again. They were never uh, ministering together again. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. And people don't know why, but I remember from Acts chapter 2, what does it say? That where's Barnabas from? It's from Cyprus. So there's this strong family connection going on there between Barnabas and Mark and wanting to go home and ministering to his home people. Maybe I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. Uh-oh. It's all right. So, so they wanted to go home, maybe. And Paul said, no, I want to go the other way. And says, but Paul, verse 20, chose Silas and left. And notice the difference commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. It could be, very well be, that Paul was righter in this circumstance. (laughs) And the only context he would have is that the church commended him. The church was behind him. And they sanctioned what he was doing. Whereas Barnabas had just took off. Mark, John Mark, would later write, the book of Mark, right? He had a real problem with follow-through and faithfulness. Any of you have problem with faithfulness, follow-through? Good news. At the end of Paul's life, when I've shared this before, at the end of Paul's life, he's in prison, and it's, he says, all have abandoned me. They've all abandoned him. He's alone except for a few. And guess who one of those people was? Mark. Send Mark. Have him bring my parchments and my coat because he has great comfort to me in my ministry. I look at Abraham. That guy struggled with fearfulness. He was a fearful dude, lying, telling people his wife was his sister and all this stuff because he didn't want to die. And what is he known for? A father of faith. You know, quite often on our greatest weakness, God will take that and make it into something so amazing and so awesome. This is why when we put on Jesus Christ, he says, you who used to be this way, stop doing that. Put on Christ and start doing this. You who used to steal, stop stealing. Put on Jesus, get a job, and start being a giver. Start giving. And you'll find that people, you know, I think of Rick Brown, who used to be 
all caught up in all the evil. And then you see him on the other side pouring out his life for people who were in the same circumstance. You know, I mean, God is so faithful and so good. So don't give up on each other. You know, and when we run into arguments, let's talk it out and pray it out. There are things that we can agree not to agree on and we can still get along. And I pray that we would have that heart of Christ and do that as opposed to parting ways. I pray that we would talk to each other right face to face when we've got issues going on as opposed to going around each other. It's hard, it's difficult, but that's what Jesus has called us to do, to go love one another in difficult circumstances. And I'm not perfect in this way and I'm growing in this way, but that's not an excuse. We've got to go for what God has and he has for us. So difficulties will be in our fellowship. There'll be doctrinal things. There have been doctrinal things in our church. They've split our church, right? Let's pray that God protects us and that our hearts are firmly planted upon him and his word and that we would be people united in the spirit. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this evening, uh, this day, sorry. And um, I just praise you for this group of people who worship you, who love you, who are seeking you, God. And yet we are like Mark in so many ways. And we pray, God, that you would uh, remind us of the finished product. Remind us that you will be faithful to complete that good work that you started in us. We pray this morning, Father, that if there's a brother or sister that we see that we just can't stand because they aren't there yet, that we would actually have the grace because I know that I'm that person to someone else. And Lord, would you give us the patience of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the discipling heart of Jesus to be long-suffering and loving. And I pray, God, for the doctrine in our church, Lord, that you would guard us, protect us, not that we would be so right in everything, but we would have the right heart and that our doctrine would turn into love. Our doctrine would turn into action. Our doctrine would turn into a heart for the lost world and caring about each other deeply like you did, Jesus. So we come before you and we praise you. And we thank you for this day. Amen.